This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Kirsty Everett, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. I'm very excited. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're really excited to have you. I don't think we've ever had a gymnast on the podcast. Oh, well, I don't know if I can really count as one because I didn't quite make it to the Olympics. So, right. Yeah. But you were still a gymnast, weren't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So, um, let me introduce you and then we'll talk about that. The book is called Honey Blood. Kirsty Everett was going to be an Olympic gymnast, but as she made plans to win gold, Life, as it does, laughed at the goal she'd set. At age nine, she was diagnosed with leukaemia and spent the next two and a half years in treatment. At age 16, her cancer returned. Against all odds, Kirsty survived. She completed her Bachelor of Arts with a double major in English and Aboriginal Studies. In 2006, Kirsty received an award for outstanding voluntary service from the New South Wales Governor, Marie Bashir. She has been a motivational and educational speaker since the age of 14. And to this day, Kirsty continues to be an ambassador for kids' cancer. I'm super excited to have you and to be chatting today. I'm super excited to be chatting to you. Like, yeah, this is very, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start from when you were little let's start about the passion of being a gymnast because I often think with sport and I'm not an athlete I mean I do exercise but I'm not an athlete <laughs> but there is total commitment isn't it it's all consuming talk to me about where that came from as a young child well, it certainly wasn't um, one thing that I want to be very clear about is that um, my parents weren't, you know, pushy parents that wanted an Olympian child. Um, it was it was totally my choice. I think I was I was four years old when I started, and I think it was because I just saw it on the television and. My parents were always very open to letting um, me and my siblings just have a go at whatever we wanted to do. And I saw it on the TV and thought, oh, that looks really, really cool. And so they they let me have a go at it. And I really, really liked it. But, you know, there's lots of things we could say like, oh, yes, and I want to be a scientist or yes, whatever. But, I mean, to be a gymnast requires some kind of athletic skill, doesn't it? So you were in primary school and what, did you start little gym or how did you get into it? Yeah, so I, I don't even remember what it was called, but I remember, yeah, the, the youngest you could be to do it, I think they didn't like letting you in until until you were five. So I think mum or dad might have told a little fib because I was really keen to start. So I think I was maybe six months away from, you know, my fifth birthday or something. 
And so you were doing cartwheels, um, forward rolls, all that's backflips, whatever they, you know, yeah. those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think too, when when you're that little and that young, I think you're not afraid when someone says, hey, try this, do this, you know, jump in the air. Um, you just think, oh yeah, I can do that. Um, so it's it's probably a good time to, to get into it when you don't have that fear of falling or hurting yourself, I guess. And where did you grow up? I grew up in the Sutherland Shire. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I still, I still live here now and it's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely beautiful um, here. And uh, I didn't realize how fond of it I was um, until after I'd written the book and started realizing that I was writing about it with a lot of like love and fondness for it. I didn't know I had that kind of shy pride in me. <laughs> Do you know what it is sometimes? It's not even shy pride because, I mean, I, I don't live there. I live in the inner west. But it's pride in your community, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's just really beautiful. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, there's there's trees down every street. If I if I look out my window, I, you know, it's just it's just. It's just beautiful, you know. Mm. It's where you want to be. It's your place. Yeah. Um, so you're in primary school and you're doing gym. Yeah. Were you getting to an excellent level that there could have been a chance? Were you kind of doing competing at state levels or were you competing at all? Where were you at? So I was, yeah, I was competing. I was representing New South Wales um, mm-hmm. on more than one occasion. Um, yeah, they were competitions where you would be competing against other states and then what happened? Tell me how it all changed, how life will change for you. Well, I I got leukaemia. I um, was, you know, feeling a bit sick and unwell, like in the lead up to the diagnosis. Like I, I was a bit run down from my sort of child point of view. I just, I just thought I was a bit tired and run down from gymnastics um, because there had been a lot of competitions and a lot of training and I just thought, oh, you know, maybe that's all it is. But yeah, it wasn't. It was it was cancer. So. And how did that transpire? Like, um, I know a young girl who had leukemia, and and around around about the age of nine as well. And it started with bruising. That's how it kind of transpired for her. How did it start for you? You know, when was it that you realised, or your parents realised that something was wrong? Yeah, so I, I had the bruising as well. Um, but once again, we just thought, you know, you're doing gymnastics, you're throwing your body around. So we just kind of thought, oh, it's um, it's probably, you know, the gymnastics. But I did start to, there are a lot of little signs. Like I started to, you know, I kept getting ear infections and they would go away and they would come back again. I became really jaundiced. Um, I looked really yellow. I lost a lot of weight, um, but nobody sort of, you know, I, yeah, we didn't really know what was going on there because, um, you know, young kids sometimes they go through a phase where they're a bit fussy about eating and they're just, yeah, there, there came a day, um, and I write about this in, a, in the book, there came a day where I got home from school and started throwing up and kind of did not stop throwing up and my parents took me to hospital and, and that's where, yeah, the diagnosis and everything all sort of played out. So, yeah. so I, I can't kind of try and put myself in my nine-year-old mind, um, and maybe you can, to work out how a child digests news like that. I know how your parents would have digested it. I, I feel that immediately, right? I can feel their pain right now. But how does a child cope with that news? Look, I, I think... I think my parents were actually in 
I think being in the parent position was probably worse than the position I was in. I actually think that, you know, watching someone you love be sick or finding out that someone you love is going to be in pain or has a battle ahead of them, I actually think that is more agonising. I would actually prefer be the person that is in pain, like give me the suffering, but please don't make me watch someone I love suffer. I don't know if that makes sense. It does make sense. So in my little, you know, nine-year-old brain, I I guess I was really fortunate when I was diagnosed, um, the oncologist that looked after me, his name was Professor Darcy O'Gorman-Hughes, and I write about him in the book. Um, He was an incredible man, and he sat me down and looked me right in the face and he explained everything to me very clearly. He let me know that that he had treated other young people with leukemia and that most of them got better um, and that he felt he could do the same thing for me. But I always remember he, he was talking to me. He didn't sort of talk to my parents and ignore me. This is a man that certainly knew how to talk and explain things to children and and was certainly a doctor that had such a huge sense of empathy, which I think is one of the really important things for for medical health professionals to remember is to have that that sense of empathy. So I did did understand it. I I knew it was serious. Um, I knew that... You know, I'd had an uncle who had died of cancer, so that was the only knowledge of it that I had. But then I also had this wonderful professor who was very kind and sitting in front of me and explaining, I'm going to do this and that and I'm going to work to help you get better and your family's going to help you and we're everyone here at the hospital, we're going to do our best. And I just thought, okay, well, this is the plan, like, let's do it. It, it, This sounds like we can get this done and, yeah. Let's start. Can you tell us a little bit about what leukaemia is for some of our listeners? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I I forget about normies sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So leukaemia is cancer of the blood. Um, So obviously we all know we have blood inside our body and we have red blood cells, we have white blood cells and we have platelets. When you have leukaemia, pretty sure I'm getting this right. I'm not a medical, I'm not a doctor. Um, But with leukaemia, you have too many white blood cells and they're white blood cells that don't sort of mature and grow properly and they kind of take over so there's no room for red blood cells or platelets to do the work that they do to make sure your body is healthy. And apologies to any medical person listening who just thinks that that was a terrible description. (laughs) We'll take that, Kirsty. Okay, (laughs) so tell me about the experience of treatment. Uh, That went on for a while, didn't it? Yeah, so I had to have two, about two and a half years of chemotherapy treatment. And I mean, it's awful. It's, it's absolutely awful. Um, The, you know, I had my treatment at, it's now Sydney Children's Hospital, but uh, when I was diagnosed back then, it was uh, Prince of Wales Children's Hospital. And it was a really old, dark, dingy, uh, it was a really depressing building. 
And yeah, sometimes you would be in hospital for treatment that would be intravenous. So you'd be on a drip for three days and, you know, other times you'd be in there for weeks because something would go wrong. You would have a bad reaction. You would need a blood transfusion. Um, So as much as they have a treatment plan of getting all these drugs into your body, you know, you had to take tablets, you had to have intravenous drugs. I also, part of the treatment for my leukemia was that um, I had to have uh, chemotherapy injected into my spine. So that was, that was probably, that was pretty awful. Um, Yeah. So two and a half years of of doing that the the side effects were they the typical side effects that you see with cancer patients like losing your hair and yeah yeah and how did you do deal with that as a nine-year-old um well I I avoided the mirror a lot (laughs) I didn't I didn't want to look um because you don't look like you and it's not just I'm not sure if people ever think about this but it's not just the hair on your head that falls out, it's your eyebrows and your eyelashes and those are the things that sort of give you your character and your face and everything. So I felt like I looked like an alien and often in public people look at you like you're an alien. So, yeah, so obviously the, you know, the physical transformation that being on chemo um, does to your body, you know, you're really pale as well. And, and then they put you on steroids. So your face gets really puffy and, and that's not attractive either. Um, and it's one also- hit after another, isn't it? Um, were you going to school at all during this time or were you being homeschooled? Or um, No, I, I got the option. So, um, the, the general kind of thing that happens is when children or teenagers are diagnosed with cancer, we're all told straight up, you don't have to worry about school if you don't want to, you can drop out, you can put it on hold. I was given that option and refused to take it. I got myself to school whenever I could. And when I couldn't get to school, um, I had really great teachers who would drop off schoolwork to like my my family home so I could keep up with school and the year that I was diagnosed with cancer I actually came first in my class um that that so you were a smarty pants right (laughs) (laughs) um tell me about friends and you know at nine and ten I guess and then you went into 11 so you were it was primary school of a primary yeah how do friendship groups, because they're formative years, aren't they, in terms of making friends and growing up and trying to find your way in life. How formative was your, how did it form you as a person, your cancer, and how did it relate to those friendship groups? Um, I think in terms of, I obviously had, you know, my friends at gymnastics and my friends at school. And the thing that I sort of noticed a lot and also would would hear about because you know children hear things their parents say and and they repeat it to you so a lot of the friends that I had I, I remember being told by you know people little kids I was friends with being told uh mum and dad said that you're probably gonna die so I can't oh, play with you anymore I, I remember that happening a few times and yeah I mean it's obviously not very nice so it, it I mean I guess it's just sad and, oh, and it's sad. I guess it's sad to know that that's the message that comes from adults. And I mean, 
you know, I obviously understand that a message like that given to children, it comes from a place, I guess, of ignorance and a place of not fully understanding, I guess, the magnitude of, of those words coming out of your mouth. So, yeah. So you finished primary, went to yeah. high school, and by the time you hit high school, were you cancer-free? Um, yeah. So uh, I was in remission. Um, and yeah, and I was really excited to go to high school because I was going to a high school where I wouldn't be with a lot of people from primary school. So I thought, oh, great. Like, you know, I won't be the cancer girl at this school. I'm, I can just be me like, excellent. This is good. So. And was good. Was it good? Yes, it was fantastic. I tell you what, when I finished that, uh, the first two and a half years of chemo and was given the all clear, I was just absolutely ecstatic. I was overjoyed to be alive. I, I don't know how my parents kept up with me, but I started to do anything and everything that I was allowed to do. Like I, I took singing, dancing lessons, acting lessons, joined the debating team, did public speaking, got involved in the theater. Um, I went skydiving. I went swimming with sharks. I just, I couldn't get enough. It was like, I suddenly had this appetite for, okay, give me life. Give me lots and lots of life. I want everything. Like, I haven't done half those things. Um, <laughs> We can, we can do some together. Tell me okay. What you're willing to do and, and right. well, skydiving, no. Uh, we'll get to the list. Um, so here you were studying, probably being a good student. Were you still doing um, gymnastics? No, I no. um, I didn't. I didn't go back. Um, I started to actually do, um, so there, there is a little bit of a difference. So I didn't go back to sort of traditional gymnastics. I started to do acrobatics, which was just, you know, performing tricks on the floor and performing tricks on really big trampolines. And yeah, I sort of felt like, yeah, I, I was a little bit disheartened and thought, you know, the window of opportunity was gone and, I still, you know, my body still kind of wanted to kind of do those things. But I, I did them more, it was more doing them for fun rather than doing them to be an Olympian. Yeah, I let that one go. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So what, were you in year 10 when you got your second diagnosis? Yeah, so I was actually, I was right... I think it was the beginning of year 11 in high right. school. So I was, yeah, so I'd finished year 10 
And yeah, it was January. So you know how you don't go back to school. Um, so it was January and I was about to start uh, year 11 in high school. And that's when, that's when the little bugger decided to come back again. And, and how did you know? How did that transpire? Were you feeling unwell again? I, I'm going to sound insane, but this is, this is how I felt. Um, there was a good, like two, maybe three months before I relapsed where I just had, you know, when you get that, that awful feeling of doom in your gut, that something bad is about to hit. I, I was carrying that for, yeah, about two to three months. I just, I knew I wasn't I knew something wasn't right. I had all of this awful pain in my spine. I had these terrible headaches and I just knew, I thought, oh, this is, it's coming back. And I, I didn't really, you know, openly say it to anybody. I didn't talk to my parents. I didn't say anything to my friends, but I, I knew, I knew what was brewing and it was almost like I was just waiting for the day where, you know, my body would collapse and then, you know, um, it would all unfold again. So you didn't go to the doctor earlier in that three months you went at the very end? I did. I did. What oh, you did. The, um, okay. yeah, I did. I, I actually went, I was due for, um, due to have my blood checked and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it was interesting writing about it in the book. I actually went in and it was for my routine check and I was expecting them to say, oh, yeah, the, it's, it's come back, we can see it. And they said, no, 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 your, your blood, it's, it's all clear. And I thought, oh, that's not right. And then what ended up happening was, was that the oncologist who looked after me the second time around, she said, oh, we might just check the spinal fluid just to make sure that's clear. And it wasn't, my cancer wasn't showing up in my blood, which is weird because it's cancer of the blood, um, but it showed up in the tests of my spinal fluid the second time. And even, you know, the oncologist that did that test, she said, I don't think it's going to be in there. Like your blood looks normal, but yeah. And is yeah. that unusual? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think so. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, don't do anything the normal way. Go oh, the undo. Uh, <laughs> go the unusual path. Where's the fun in that? <laughs> Where is the fun in that, Kirsty? <laughs> keep it tough, right? Okay, so tell me how this process then transpired. I mean, firstly, how you felt. Uh, the second time, I it was sort of I. I mean, like like I said, I, I knew it was coming, but then once I sort of had that certainty that it had come back. I, I sort of felt a bit ripped off. I thought, you know, I beat this when I was a kid and I have definitely been living life to the full. Like, what did I do wrong? Did I did I not learn some mystical lesson the first time and it's come back again to teach me the thing that I overlooked? Um, there was a part of me that thought, well, you know, um, most patients that relapsed, like, they don't survive. So I thought, well okay, I've had it once and I got to survive. So maybe this is the time where I'm not going, I'm not going to be able to fight it. And it was the second time was, was a lot harder to get rid of the cancer and to get me into remission. Treatment was a little all over the place, a bit of trial and error. Um, I needed a bone marrow transplant, but I didn't have a match. So 
my oncologist, Dr. Sue Russell, um, absolute genius. She came up with a plan to give me three years of chemotherapy. And that was the plan to get me well again. But along those three years, you know, I would have bad reactions to the drugs. She would have to go back to the drawing board, figure something else out. But she obviously my body is still here. Um, so she she succeeded. But um, knowing that it was three years of chemo, it just I remember thinking so long. I remember thinking if it was a transplant, you know, I you know, they do the prep for that over a few months. I thought, you know, I can maybe get rid of this thing in, you know, 18 months or so. And then knowing that it was three years, I was like, oh, gotta be kidding. Like this is oh this is really- it's kind of mind over matter stuff by then, isn't it? You've got to get yourself mentally through it. Yeah. yeah. And um and I did like I did kind of switch back into that same sort of the same approach that I had the first time. And this was something that obviously I now know that I'm older, you know, my parents always sort of wanted, they always thought it was important, not just for me, but for the family, just to keep moving ahead, you know, no matter how awful the day was or whether you're in pain, you keep moving, you don't stop and you try and live kind of sometimes pretending like you're not sick, Mm. um, having distractions, um, doing whatever you can just to get through the day. And yeah, it is, it is like you've just said, uh, it's this mindset. You have to kind of turn on this thing where it's like, okay, I'm going to push forward and this is really, really awful. But, um, if I allow any other kind of negative thoughts or, you know, if I start really thinking about this, it's, yeah, the, the negative stuff is going to swallow you up really quick. So, And so in that three years, did you continue your education? Yes, I did. Once again, I was almost, once again, they were like, you don't have to. And I was like, oh, well, you know, you can get stuffed. I'm, I'm going to do it every time. Someone, it was almost like a challenge. It was like, they've told me that I don't have to. So I'm really going to show them now. So yeah, I kept up with my education. I actually did my HSC while I was on chemotherapy, but all those students out there who complain about not being able to study, um, if I can do it when I'm on chemo, there's really no excuse for anybody that is Absolutely left. none. I'm really sorry for every teenager out there, but if I could pull it off, then um, sorry, kids, <laughs> you, need to get, you need to get studying. <laughs> and you did well, obviously, because then you went to Yeah, I, I did really well, yeah. yeah. I, <laughs> you can brag. I want to hear some bragging. Oh, well, I don't want to, there, there's some things from the book that I don't okay. want to give away. I, okay. I, I ended up with a mark so good that I could pretty much do whatever I wanted and go to any university I wanted as well. So, yeah, I was I was pretty happy with that. <laughs> so at what point did you get the all clear or the all remission clear or whatever they call it? The so I think by then, um, I think I was 20 years old. Yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, so... Yeah, I was 20. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just remembering now, like my 21st birthday, actually my hair was quite long. So I'm just, I always <laughs> figure out, I figure out cancer dates by like, how long was my hair then? <laughs> and were you elated? I mean, obviously you're elated, but did you think at that stage, okay, doing it again, putting it behind me and jumping into study and working out what I'm going to be? Um, I did jump into study, but I 
I was a bit weary. Um, I was, I, and there was part of me too that, um, you know, I thought after the, you know, having cancer the first time as a child and thinking, Oh, it's never going to come back again. Life is great. Let's do it. And then, and then getting burnt the second time, I think I was a little bit more cautious. And even with some of the decisions that I made in terms of studying, it's almost like I, you know, I didn't feel any pressure to sort of choose a career straight away because I thought, Oh, well, I might end up getting sick again. So I'm just going to do a Bachelor of Arts degree and I'm going to study anything I'm interested in. So I got to indulge in, you know, looking into philosophy and sociology, all those things that you want to study, but no one ever thinks that, I mean, those things don't usually lead to a career anywhere. But I thought, well, you know, I might as well do all this cool stuff and we'll just see how my body, it was like I was sort of testing the waters of life before I got too committed to anything else. I think you deserve that leeway. Tell me about the writing process. Like at what point did you think you needed to write your life experience and the title, Honey Blood? Talk to me about those two things. Okay, so the very first time that I thought I should write down, you know, some of this cancer stuff that's going on, I think I was about 17 years old. And I found a, a life writing course with Patty Miller through uh, the New South Wales Writers' Centre. And when I first went along to Patty's class, I went along because I actually did at the time think I was quite likely to die and not because I was being negative, but just because of how my body felt and how things had been playing out with my treatment. I was thinking look, I might be highly likely to die from this thing and I'd like to maybe leave a little something behind. And that's how I sort of first, that was the first reason why. And so I went along and her classes were awesome. I was the youngest person in the class. Um, And and I write about that in the book as well. And Patty Patty was amazing. And so, yeah, I did some of those classes and then I managed to still stay alive, I guess. So I put the writing aside for a little bit and I came back to it. It was maybe about five or six years ago. Um, there was sort of a bit of a, a window of opportunity. I was sort of shifting. I was changing where I was working. Um, you know, life was sort of shifting and there was this, uh, there was a writing opportunity with New South Wales Writers' Centre and you could submit, I think, 50 pages and then they would line you up with a couple of classes and a mentor. And so I wrote, I thought, you know, I I should write this stuff down. It it felt like um, almost like a compulsion. Something bigger than me was kind of saying, this is the time to do it. And I sent in 50 pages It was really late at night. I did not check anything, um, which freaks me out right now. Um, But they got back to me and they said, oh, it looks like you've got something that you could work with here. And so I found myself back doing some classes with Patty, which was really cool. Um, And um, it was really nice to do classes with her and not be sick. The first time I did classes with her, I actually had pneumonia when I was 17 and doing her classes. I had pneumonia, but I didn't know at the time. Um, So it was really good to do her classes inside a healthy body. (laughs) Um, 
And yeah, everyone in the class was, oh my goodness, they they had done so much work. I think I was the least, you know, had written the least amount. Um, but it's certainly doing the classes. Um, she certainly knows how to kind of kickstart all of those memories. And, and then, yeah, that's how I've spent the last few years is getting the book done. And yeah, and, and I pulled it off. So <laughs> You did pull it off. You did pull it off, Kirsty. And I want to say that you pulled it off. Um, a lot of people write their life story and they're not really writers. They're there to tell their story of their life. But I think you're a writer. And you're telling the story of your life. Oh, that, see, that, thank you so much for saying that because one of the labels that I've been getting for a really long time is that I'm just kind of Kirsty, the girl that's had cancer. And it's really nice to have a label um, as a writer, which is really, really cool. Um, but it's nice to have the label be something different. So thank you so much. That means so, so much. And especially coming from you as well. Um, yeah, it's thank you. <laughs> well, we have loved it in the office. I have loved it. Kirsty, we want you to keep writing. But oh. meanwhile, everybody go read Honey Blood. Thank you so much for your time today. So generous of you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your time. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.